This is an ABC podcast. G'day and welcome to Between the Lines. This is Tom Switzer from Radio National on air, online or via your ABC Listen app. Always lovely to have your company. Now, coming up later, the Australian koala. I know that the koala has global implications. If you protect these forests, you will be able to protect the koala and millions and billions of other species. And I'm hoping that will annoy our governments very much. That's Deborah Tabat, head of the Australian Koala Foundation. Her book is called The Koala Manifesto, and she describes the role that America played historically to bolster our own conservation efforts. But first, the constitutional underpinnings of US nationhood. Well, to say that Australians are besotted by American affairs, well, <laughs> that would be an understatement, wouldn't it? Indeed, Kim Beasley, He's fond of saying more Australians are highly engaged with US politics than even Americans. <laughs> Beasley, the former Labor leader and ambassador to the United States, he's probably right, isn't he? You think about it, 2016, this is what was reported, Australian TV and radio, they gave the US election campaign double the coverage they gave our own election campaign a few months earlier. But do Australians know much about the American Revolution or the US Constitution? Remember, the US is the world's oldest constitutional republic. And what does all this mean for America today? James Phillips is author of Two Revolutions and the Constitution, How the English and the American Revolutions Produced the American Constitution. It's published by Hamilton Books. James is also a lawyer and visiting lecturer at the University of Sydney's Law School. James, welcome to Radio National. Thank you for having me, Tom. It's great to be here. Now, many books, mainly written by American historians, they've been published about the American Revolution and the origins of the American Constitution. What's so different about yours? Well, Tom, I see the American Constitution as a key pivot in the formation of the modern world. You know, at the time that it was drafted in 1787, almost everywhere in the world was ruled by a monarchy, an empire or a chief, and here's a, a new constitution that adopts representative government, the sovereignty of the people, and a pluralistic society as the basis of that political of its political organization. Now, one of the things you notice when you read anything about the American Constitution, and in particular the American Revolution, is that Americans say they were rebelling to protect their political rights. They say that the king but also Parliament in Britain, were infringing those rights. Now, most books on the Constitution look at its origins from the point of view of the, in the context of the revolutionary period. But I ask the very important question, I think, uh, well, if they were rebelling to protect their political rights, where did their perception of their political rights come from? And I think the answer to that goes right back to the establishment of the earliest colonies, Virginia and Massachusetts, and to the English experience during the 1600s, in which the English, the English had two revolutions in that period, and the first of those revolutions, they established their own republic. It didn't last long. But all that was very important to forming Americans' perception of their political rights. Does all that explain why the US Constitution, at least at that period in time, the revolutionary period, 
uh, emphasised the checks and balances in the system. This is the three rival branches of government, the executive, the judiciary, the legislative. They hold each other in check. I mean, has that system worked well during the past 230 years or has it really just hurt efforts to uh, reform things? Well, you're right. The checks and balances were introduced because uh, Americans were so concerned about the risk of tyranny. Their initial perception for a long time had been that the the king might act as a tyrant. But as they approached the revolutionary period, Parliament was cooperating with the king in imposing new taxes on Americans and removing their political rights as Americans perceived them. So by the time of the Constitution was to make it pretty much impossible for either the head of the executive or for the legislature to uh, trample on the political rights of Americans. And the mechanism that was devised at the Philadelphia Convention in 1787 to achieve that, and which the first and leading proponent was James Madison, Mm -hmm. uh, was checks and balances. Now, do they make radical reform harder? They probably, probably do. But their primary purpose was to prevent tyranny arising either from an individual or from Congress or indeed a section of society. Because don't forget, from its very beginning, America was a very diverse country. You've got the sort of Puritan colonies in the the northeast. You've got the central states, which are more engaged in trade and beginning to get involved in manufacturing and also finance. And then the southern states, whose... um, Economies are based around agricultural plantations. What's the big difference, do you think, between Australia and America in this regard? I mean, when the uh, president in the United States is from the, from one party that does not control the legislature, there's obviously constant conflict between the president and the Congress. How do you distinguish that from the Australian scene? Well, of course, the biggest difference between the Australian constitution and the American constitution is that we adopted the British model of having the executive chosen by Parliament. So the electoral base of our Prime Minister is in effect the support for his or her allies in in Parliament. In America, the system's very different. The President's separately elected. So the President's appealing to his or her political base, members of Congress appealing to their political base. And if their political base is different, that sets the scene for a lot of conflict. Some Americans said they were afraid that uh, President Trump would become a tyrant, a fascist, uh, and that he would not leave after an election loss. In hindsight, how realistic were those fears? Well, I never thought they were realistic at the time, and I certainly don't in hindsight. I mean, that was really sort of, um, you know, hyperbole, people um, getting themselves excited about Trump for all sorts of reasons. But that was really going into um, highly improbable territory. Yes, but there was a siege against the Capitol on January 6th of this year. Oh, well, would you characterise it as a siege? There was a small riot involving a small number of disorganised um, people who didn't seem to have any political uh, organisation, who seemed to be, um, you know, pretty marginal people. So it wasn't anything like uh, a coup. And you've got to remember in America that not only is the constitution tyrant proof, but the institutions that support it are also very robust. I mean, if you look at the first constitution of the Soviet Union, you'll see a utopian democratic constitution. You contrast that with the reality 
a, a regime that murdered tens of millions of, of its own citizens. Uh, so there can be a big gap between what's written and the way it works in practice. But in the US, both the constitution and the institutions that support it are very robust. Yes, well, the American constitution establishes a system of government to empower free individuals. How did that happen in an age when most people lived under monarchs or emperors who had, had, had almost absolute power, James? Yeah, well, this is sort of why I wrote the, the book, because to me, as I said, this is a real pivot in world history. And the Americans took it to a new level. They didn't invent it. James Phillips is author of Two Revolutions and the Constitution. Let's turn to see how your thesis might affect Australia, James. Did the Declaration of Independence, 1776, this is primarily drafted and written by Thomas Jefferson, declared, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, etc. To what extent did that have consequences for Australia? Well, it had enormous consequences, Tom. The Declaration, coupled with in the fact of independence, had three great consequences, at least, for Australia. First, it led to the establishment of the colony in New South Wales, because the British could no longer send convicts to the 13 American colonies that declared their independence. Uh, second, it facilitated Australian independence, because the British became much more careful after their American experience in resisting requests from a settler colony for independence. And thirdly, it had an influence, an indirect influence on the Australian constitution because it led to the American constitution and the structure of the Australian constitution draws heavily from the American model. But there's a difference between the American experience and our experience, right? I mean, the Americans fought for their independence, whereas essentially the British fed us our independence, right? Yes, this is one of the reasons that America has invested heavily in teaching about and even developing mythologies about the Constitution, and Australia hasn't. Well, let's bring this to today. America is usually renowned for its optimism and can-do spirit, as you well know. Yet it's also true that it's been consumed by self-doubt, a crisis of confidence, a toxic political polarisation that goes beyond Democrats and Republicans. Do you think that President Biden, or anyone for that matter, can unite the American people? Can they restore faith in their future? Um, Americans will find their, a, a way through their current problems, but the current problems are quite profound. You have very different ways of seeing the world, different belief systems, different views on the role of government, quite deeply embedded in different parts of American society. So no, I don't think Biden's going to uh, change that. And I think it's going to take quite a while to uh, resolve that in some way. And this comes at a time when a lot of Americans have doubts about their nation's past. I mean, a Fox News poll just last year, it found an astonishing share of Americans under the age of 30. They think America's founders, they're better described as villains than heroes. That's 39%. So given all this, given the rising tide of cancel culture, woke society, culminating in this erosion of a unifying national narrative, and it's really what the Constitution and the Republic are about, can America keep its republic? Uh, well, I think, that, I think they'll find a way of working through. I mean, one of the things about the American Constitution is it's supposed to not overly empower one segment of society. And somehow they'll find a way through their current problems. Dr. Franklin, Benjamin Franklin, after the Constitutional Convention in 1787, he said that we have a republic if you can keep it. James, great to have you on Radio National. Thanks, Tom. 
That's James Phillips. He's a Sydney-based lawyer and author of Two Revolutions and the Constitution. On RN, this is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer. Some of the sounds of the disastrous bushfires that took place over the end of 2019 and the start of 2020. Now, the result of those fires was a devastating loss of lives, houses, land, livelihoods. It was also reported at that time that an estimated one billion animals were killed or displaced by the bushfires. Since then, a World Wildlife Fund report that revealed that the number is almost three times higher than first thought. Now think about that. 143 million mammals, 2.64 billion reptiles, 180 million birds, and 51 million frogs. Three billion animals. Extraordinary. Now thousands of pictures of the Australian bushfires were beamed around the world during that time. But there was a particular image that struck a chord globally. That was the image of a koala clinging to its rescuer, its face and body singed, and its home burnt to the ground. Now, that image must have been particularly soul-destroying to my guest today. Deborah Tabat has devoted decades to the survival of the Australian koala. She's chair of the Australian Koala Foundation and author of a new book called The Koala Manifesto. Deborah, thank you for joining me on Between the Lines. Thank you so much for having me. Now, title of your book, you've joined the other historic rebels who wrote about their radical ideas on how to change the world, Karl Marx, Che Guevara. What's behind the Koala Manifesto? Well, um, if you look closely, um, Tom, at the image on the front page of the koala, on the the cover of the manifesto, we did actually superimpose a koala on a branch over the top of Che Guevara and his gun. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Um, Because... After 33 years, I'm so sick of it. And so people were encouraging me not to use that word, but I do think that the Ten Commandments, for want of a better word, in the book are the manifesto for the survival of the koala, but more so for the forests of Australia and also the river systems of Australia. So, yeah, I'm happy to wear that. And Mm. I do want to be that radical in a way because I think it would be doing a disservice to the young conservationists if you don't show them what they're up against. Well, you've led the foundation, the Australia Koala Foundation, for more than three decades. I think it's 33 years. Uh, What was life like for koalas when you started back then compared with now? Well, I honestly, you know, when I got the job, I was just told to raise $5 million so that we could fund research at universities. And Mm. raising money for koalas is pretty simple. I went to Westpac and Qantas and Ken Doan, and they all were very generous. And at that time, everyone thought that it was chlamydia. But it came, and, and, and chlamydia now, of course, is uh, is shockingly high levels because you get sick when you don't have trees or food. So it's logical. But chlamydia has been with them for millennia. It became obvious to me that it was all about habitat. And then it was really obvious to me that it was about um, who owned those habitats and whether they were prepared to protect them. And by and large, they're not. Now, you say in the book, Deborah, that you believe wholeheartedly that the koala is probably the only animal that can inspire not just local but global change. They're your words. Why? Yes, they are. They are. Well, 
I dream of a Koala Protection Act because I think all laws in Australia are completely inadequate to protect the environment and I know that to be true. I also believe that international laws that are supposed to protect the environment and animals are also inadequate. And I dream of legislation called Crimes Against Creatures Great and Small in The Hague that will bring everyone to account for every species. And the only species that I think can pull that off is the koala because it doesn't hurt anyone, doesn't eat you, doesn't trample your crops, just sits there looking fabulous and brings billions of dollars of tourism. But Deborah, have we missed an opportunity here? If you go back uh, to the end of 2019, early 2020, the eyes of the world were on Australia, our bushfires, then the pandemic hit. It was hardly avoidable, but did we miss an opportunity on the global stage to make real changes for wildlife everywhere? I absolutely believe we lost the opportunity. And uh, Minister Susan Lay, the Environment Minister, and she's the 14th Environment Minister that I've had to deal with over my tenure, had pretty much everyone that was necessary in a room at a round table in February just prior to COVID. Now, she could have had a blueprint for recovery of this species and the protection of forests, but all she's done is just continually put Band-Aid on things because no one really wants to deal with will we protect landscapes that are privately owned? And I think the politics in New South Wales of recent times are all about can I knock down koala habitats that are on my private land? And that's why I'm dedicated to new laws. We as a nation are going to have to protect all biodiversity of our country if we are to long-term survive both climate change, pandemics, and, uh, and keep our water systems healthy and clean, not to mention the koalas and, and those tragic figures that you said at the beginning. My guest is Deborah Tabat. She's chair of the Australian Koala Foundation, and we're talking about her new book, The Koala Manifesto. Deborah, in your book, you say, I want to paint a picture for you of what koala habitats might look like if we as a global community decide that we want the koala to be safe forever. Question here is, what's that picture? Oh, well, that picture is some of the forests that I've been in, you know, in my career. And so when I first started going with the scientists into the bush, I remember being in the Pilliga Scrub, which is west of Coonabarabran, and you want to sing Walsing Matilda. I mean, it's just magic. And imagine what our country looked like at White Settlement. If you look at the pre-clearing maps, which we have on our website, our country was just unbelievably majestic, as was America. And in America, I think there's only 5% of the redwoods left. And in our country, there's only 20% of the koala forests left. So look at the damage we've done. We cannot cut down one more tree. We have to find other ways of being. One of the intriguing things I found about your book, Deborah, is uh, you mentioned that in 1929, President uh, Herbert Hoover, uh, who presided over the Great Depression, uh, or at least the the collapse of Wall Street, uh, he stopped the importation of koalas and wombat skins after taking the view that both species were at risk. Yes, look, he was a godsend. And when I give my talks in America, they say, well, it was the only thing he did, Um, you know, because they (laughs) they think he was a bit of a dill. Um, He was a one-term president, but go on, yeah. Yeah. Um, Look, between 1890 and 1927, we have the manifest of 8 million skins that went to New York and London alone. 
I truly believe that at least twice that was shot, maybe even more, which would suggest that koalas were in absolute abundance during that time. And so imagine what our forests would look like if those were there. And sometimes when I go into some of the Victorian forests, I actually think that's what it was like. If you look at um, Mae Gibbs's paintings, for instance, you can often see, you know, she's got two little koalas huddled together. I've only ever seen that once in my whole career, and that was in a Victorian forest. I just think if you look at the historical paintings, especially Mae Gibbs, she was painting the bush as it was. I think that we as Australians have forgotten some of that majesty. I want the people who read my book Mm. and Australians to really think, can we return this landscape to what it was? And I truly believe you can. Now, we're talking about Herbert Hoover, President of the United States from 29 to 33. He had been, little known fact, a mining engineer in Western Australia in the mid to late 1890s. So he may have fallen under the spell of the koalas like everyone else, Deborah. <laughs> well, he did. I mean, that's the thing. Isn't it interesting? He did. And, and this is the power of them, Tom. And that's why I'm convinced You know, there are people who are championing concepts of ecocide, which is the equivalent of genocide. But those those laws are not getting up because industry has so much heat against it. But who could ever object to a law that says creatures great and small? Otherwise, you can have a dictator that comes into Africa and say, right, I'm going to go and blow away all the cheetahs or the elephants. We have to have international laws. And I'm convinced that I will be taken seriously over time to start championing those thoughts. Okay. Now, the year 2000 uh, was another yep. significant year for the American protection of the koala. You spent time in Washington around this time. Tell us what happened. Well, in 1998, the Koala Habitat Atlas, our signature project for mapping habitats, received a Computer World Smithsonian Award. And so I was in Washington because I was asked to be a judge for those awards for the next two. And so while I was there, I got to sort of go to Capitol Hill and see the lobbyists. And another group had actually nominated the koala for listing under the Endangered Species Act of the United States because they believed that they had a a universal role or global role in protecting species. And so that did actually happen. And I did spend a lot of time at the United States US Fish and Wildlife Service lobbying and providing information from our maps, which actually got it up. Now, at the time, that was Clinton and Gore, and they were trying to convince the Australian government that we had to meet Kyoto protocols. We were chastised. You are clearing second only to the Amazon. We have to stop cutting our trees down. And so I could waffle on forever about this, but I know that the koala has global implications. If you protect these forests, you will reduce our emissions, you will be able to protect the koala and millions and billions of other species that are in 20% of our continent. And I'm hoping that will annoy our governments very much. Before we let you go, Deborah, what did you include in your Koala Protection Act? Well, the Koala Protection Act is terribly simple, and I modelled it on the Bald Eagle Act. The Bald Eagle Act initially was just one piece of paper which said you cannot touch its trees and you cannot touch its habitat. And so our document is a little stronger than that, but it basically says if a koala tree is on any given landscape, the application is automatically no 
unless you, the proponent, can prove that your activity is benign. Because the current laws basically say, yep, no worries, mate, you can do whatever you like and you, the community, have to fight to the death to prove that we're being destructive. And so this would change the bonus of proof to the proponent, not to the community. And as I write in the manifesto, I am so tired of seeing weary and exhausted communities having to fight for their landscapes, either for food production or the protection of their waterways or the protection of species like the koalas. And let me tell you, I have had the most amazing life over 33 years going to some of those communities because they always say, you know, let's save the koala because of its iconic power. And I have seen so much of Australia and I've seen so much of it destroyed. Well, good on you, Deborah. Thanks so much for joining me on Between the Lines. Thanks for having me. Deborah Tabart is chair of the Australian Koala Foundation and author of The Koala Manifesto, and we'll put a link to the book on our website. This is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer. Yes, indeed, you are with me, Tom Switzer, on Between the Lines, on air, online, and on your ABC Listen app. And just a reminder that you can download any of our episodes, past and present, wherever you get your podcasts, or you can go to the ABC program page, abc.net.au. And now to some significant wartime history. Hitler's invasion of the Soviet Union, which took place in June 1941, just more than 80 years ago, it was an operation codenamed Barbarossa. And our guest who tells the story of Operation Barbarossa is Jonathan Dimbleby. Now, the Dimbleby family, as many of you may be aware, dominated BBC current affairs programs. Jonathan, his brother David, and his father Richard. But in recent times, Jonathan has distinguished himself as a leading historian. So let's get started. Twenty-second of June, 1941, Hitler unleashed Operation Barbarossa, the largest invasion in history. Its target, Stalin's Soviet Union. We'll go back eight decades. Nazi Germany dominates Europe. Poland, France, they'd been conquered and occupied. Britain is just weathering the Nazi storm. Now, Hitler turns east to communist Russia. It's June 22, 1941. Operation Barbarossa, the greatest invasion force in history, along a front that stretched from the Baltics to the Balkans. Now, when the Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin was woken with the news of Hitler's invasion, he wouldn't believe it. But over the next six months, from June 22, 1941, the Germans suffered more than a million casualties the Soviet forces, about 5 million casualties, and 1 million Jews were murdered. Operation Barbarossa was Hitler's greatest and most foolish gamble that ultimately led to Germany's defeat and the Nazi dictator's downfall. My guest today brings to life the scale of these extraordinarily grim events from 80 years ago. Jonathan Dimbleby is author of Barbarossa, how Hitler Lost the War, published by Viking. And it's a great pleasure to welcome him to ABC Radio. Hi there, Jonathan. Hi, nice to join you. Now, many Westerners are brought up to believe that it was the British and the Americans who defeated Hitler. You disagree with this narrative. Why? I think it's counterfactual. 
I think it's understandable because British Americans, indeed Australians, Commonwealth Empire troops fought. People lost their lives. They were severely wounded. They went through great tribulations and families grieved. And now present generations uh, remember with proper awe all that those men and women achieved. However, the facts of the matter are, in my view, that the Second World War against Hitler in Europe was won and lost in the East, not in the West. Yes, but the D-Day invasion of 1944, didn't that effectively open up a second front in Western Europe, which, which basically took pressure off the Soviet Union? That's what your critic would say in response. It did indeed do exactly that. And I don't challenge that. And it was useful. And it accelerated what would have been the victory in any case. By that time, well before D-Day, the Americans and the British were well aware that Hitler, the skids were under him, that he was going to be doomed, that the Russians were advancing, the Soviet forces, the Red Army was advancing well before then. By 1943, at the very least, people were aware of that in the West. And in fact, you could go back right to the end of 1941, where the British Foreign Secretary was warning, we'd better come to terms with Stalin now, uh, while he's in a position of relative weakness and we are in a position of relative strength so that he can't dictate terms when it's over. Yeah, I'm struck by this uh, sentence in your book, Jonathan, quote, the historic debt owed to those who fought their way across France to Berlin, these are the Americans, the Brits primarily, is not that they defeated the Nazis, but that they saved Western Europe from Stalin's tyranny. Yep. I think there were two possibilities. Either the Russians would have walked into most of Europe and certainly been the major power in Europe, able to dictate terms. Or uh, had Hitler been killed or removed, as I'm sure he would have been under the circumstances which were then approaching, a deal might have been done, might have been done, I think it's unlikely, between the Nazis or at least the Nazi successors, the Germans and the uh, Soviet Union, repeating arrangements that they'd had much earlier in the century, which would have again left that combination, whatever it might have been, uh, in control of Europe. So D-Day and afterwards, yes, took some of the heat off the Red Army. It accelerated their progress. It was of significance, as was the Lend-Lease supply. But it was going to happen by advancing finally, from the Russian perspective, across Western Europe from the Normandy landings, Hitler had to divert troops to the Western Front. They fought bitterly to protect. And we struggled towards Berlin and got there and held, in effect, what became Western Europe in the Cold War. Okay, well, let's put all this in some historical context. You dedicate the first quarter of your book, Jonathan, to the German-Russian diplomacy. This is from the early 20s to the late 30s. You say the seeds of Barbarossa are with a Soviet-German agreement in 1922. Tell us more. <laughs> well, my editor was rather taken aback at Viking when <laughs> I said I was going to start the book there. But he was very glad once he read it that I had done so. And that's because I found myself, you know, I've been a journalist all my life. And whenever I was in a place around the world, you want to know, how did this happen? How did this come about? And we don't often get the chance to do that. You take snapshots. And in the case of the invasion of Barbarossa, I wanted to know how it happened. So I went back 
to the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact of August 1939. How did that happen? And that took me back and back. Now, I could have gone back to the Middle Ages, actually. But the key thing was, at the end of the First World War, the two European behemoths, the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany, as it was to become, were pariah states. They were excluded from Versailles. A solution was imposed upon Germany, which Germany could not accept, was unwilling to accept. Uh, The Russians were treated as though they didn't count. And there was a natural urge of these two most powerful states, one with by far the largest population on the continent, the Soviet Union, the other, the most industrially advanced nation on the continent. There was a common interest in coming together at that point. They had no natural amity, but a common interest in forging a relationship. And if you go back to 1922 and the Treaty of Rapallo, which took place at Easter of 1922 in Italy, the secret deal completely tore up the attempts by the British and the French and the rest of Europe to solve the problems created Versailles. Uh, It didn't work, the attempt at Genoa to create a new Europe economically. So the terms of the deal were very simple. The Soviet Union gained sales of raw materials, which Germany greatly needed. Germany gained space to develop its own warfare in the Soviet Union illegally and despite the Treaty of Versailles. This is all this was under secret protocols, the military part. And they've created a diplomatic concordat. And that lasted. And it lasted because it was in their mutual self-interest and completely lacking in any uh, trust and it collapsed in the violent way which led to to Barbarossa. Hitler, of course, breaks his word. He attacks the Soviet Union. And you make the point, Jonathan, that the, the more intelligence Stalin received about Hitler's invasion plans, the more reluctant he, Stalin, was to believe it. Uh, question here is why? I mean, why did Stalin seem to trust Hitler more than his own mother? It's a, it's a, very, a very good question. Solzhenitsyn uh, was, I think, the source of that quote uh, about uh, trusting Hitler more than his own mother, which is a vivid way of putting it. He did not want to recognise the truth. That's my my view. He did not want to face the fact because he knew that the Red Army was in no position to defend uh, the Soviet borders that had been created by the division across Europe from the Balkans to the Baltic. Um, And he uh, therefore defied anyone. He denounced the spies who were very well informed. Victor Sorge, for instance, being one of them in Japan, informed even up until the days and the leaders of the of the three uh, army groups in detail refused to accept that evidence. And I think it came down to the fact it could not surely be true that he couldn't keep at bay the Germans for longer. And it, it is a stunning and astonishing fact of, of history because the result was that the German armies were able to, to walk freely knife through butter to start with into uh, Soviet territory. Yeah, I was going to say, for the Nazis, the invasion seemed to start well. So take us back to the northern summer of 1941, say to the first three months after the invasion, so July, August, September. Well, at the very beginning, the, the two armies on paper 
were sort of matched. In fact, the Soviet army was much bigger than the German armies. More tanks, more artillery, but the quality was not good. The training was poor. The Red Army was demoralized because of the purges in 1938. That's a key point. So and Stalin had purged a lot of his senior military leaders in the late 30s, correct? All of those who he feared might be going to challenge him, even when he was actually unassailable. And the German army had triumphed in the lowlands. It had swept through uh, Western Europe. It had broken uh, the French. It was challenging the British. and. Hitler and his generals, whether they believed him, whether they were committed to his vision, they had every certainty that he could not be challenged in what turned out to be a dramatically dangerous venture from the German point of view. So that within uh, 14 days, they'd advanced something like uh, 300 miles or more. Extraordinary. Um, taking hundreds of thousands of prisoners. But Jonathan, the uh, apparent success was a mirage. Why? That was the chief of staff of the of the German armed forces. Mm-hmm. And one of his generals, Heinrichi, was writing of the huge mental stress endured by his men, saying because of the huge underestimate of the ability of the Red Army to take punishment, he says there's no sign of an end. Despite all the victories it won, it doesn't seem as if the Russians' will to resist is broken or that people want to be rid of their Bolshevik leaders. So they were aware they were up against a formidable foe, not least because um, the numbers of soldiers available uh, to Stalin, who was very content to have them mown down, as indeed was was Hitler, Mm -hmm. that no democratic state could have begun to contemplate. Yeah, see, a lot of historians would say that the reason for the success just boils down to the mud and the cold of minus 40 degrees Celsius by early winter. You're not so convinced, are you? I think it was the rationale that was offered by uh, many of the Wehrmacht leaders after the war. That's what did it, the terrible weather for which they were unprepared. And they'd got themselves into a state where their army could hardly move effectively, whereas the Russians could move freely. But there was you know, the weather conditions were one of the phenomena over which they had no control and for which they should have been well prepared, but they were not because it was so poorly planned. But all that did in my mind was to uh, highlight and exacerbate a problem that was already there. It was already the case that the Russians were taking more and more punishment effectively. Their weapons were improving. The tanks that were coming on stream at a far more rapid rate than the Germans were able to uh, to rival. Their air force had been shattered, so the air force was still very weak. The air force had been virtually destroyed on the first day of, of, of Barbarossa. But the logistics meant that the, the supply lines were getting longer and longer. The replacements couldn't come into place. The units were decimated and the senior frontline generals, the, the best of them, were soon despairing. They explained it in part as being the consequence of the weather, but essentially they blamed it on the shortages, the lack of proper clothing, the absence of fuel for their tanks, and the sheer exhaustion of their soldiers. On RN, this is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer. 
Jonathan Dimbleby is author of Barbarossa, How Hitler Lost the War. You highlight the extraordinary commitment of um, Soviet soldiers and civilians to Stalin's great patriotic war. Uh, How do you account for this? Is, Is terror alone the explanation? I think it was twofold. The Soviet soldiers were terrorized by the regime. They lived in fear. They knew that um, if they uh, surrendered or deserted, their families would be punished. If they were caught, they would be killed. So that operated as a very powerful incentive. It was also the fact that they rapidly discovered if they were captured, their fate was worse than death on the battlefield. By the end of the war, three million Soviet soldiers had died in captivity. Up to two million of those died by the end of 1941 because they were starved, beaten, murdered in captivity. So that was the second thing. The other thing was that a great many of them saw their land being taken by, they called him a fascist invader, and their homesteads, their farms, their families were being destroyed, their villages and towns were being razed to the ground. And patriotism ran very deep in the Russian soul. So they were going to get rid of this invader. And Stalin was very clever in shifting his rhetoric very early on in July 1941 from communist slogans that uh, destroy proper thinking and replaced that with appeals to patriotism, to the great history of Mother Russia. And those combination of factors led to them putting up a resistance that the Germans had never envisaged, and they should have known it because the Russians had fought like that in the past. Well, that's right. Napoleonic France, of course, uh, in the early 1800s, and then, of course, uh, Kaiser Wilhelm Germany. Uh, So Russia had been prepared for this. Now, tell us about the cold-blooded killing of Jews. Already by December 1941, a million Jews had been killed. Now, you and your researcher do provide an impressive account of really just heartbreaking accounts from the Russian archives. Jonathan Dimbleby. It is it, it is almost unbearable to read. On the one hand, the way in which the murderers, Himmler and Heydrich's forces that mopped up behind the lines, the Einsatzgruppen, there were four of them, they were called. Basically, that was a euphemism. They were task forces, they were called. Their first task was to eliminate commissars, uh, partisans, and anyone who could be associated with the regime. That rapidly slipped into identifying anyone who uh, was a commissar or likely to be a threat, identifying them as a a Jew. And of course, Hitler had already made it very clear that one of his objectives uh, was to eliminate uh, the bacillus, the virus of the Jew from Europe. That was one of his objectives. He didn't mind how it was done to start with. What happened was from the uh, summer of, of 1941, the Einsatzgruppen swept through, very often supported by militia groups in the countries that they were taking, in the Baltics, in Ukraine, in Poland, and down into uh, the Balkans as well. They rounded up men, women, and children, and they lined them up on the edge of pits, very formally, very well organized, very well recorded in detail to send back to Berlin and mowed them down. And they sometimes took very great delight in it. It wasn't just a a duty to destroy the Jews. They enjoyed um, shooting women. They enjoyed throwing babies up into the air and bayoneting or using them as 
target practice. It is hideous and it's almost impossible to read, but I felt it was extraordinarily important not to forget that that was a large part of what happened on that front in 1941. And uh, the, 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 those who tell the story, the survivors on the one hand, and also those just as hideous, those who were participants, who, who sort of spoke in pride of what they'd achieved or were achieving. And, and it was, as you said, it was about uh, around about a million of those Jews were killed. And this, the, the, the gas chambers, Auschwitz, Chelmno and the others, uh, Treblinka, were only just in their infancy. They'd started to use, explore gas because Himmler realized that they couldn't get rid of the Jews by any other way than killing them. And they couldn't kill them fast enough by shooting them. And it also did cause amongst some a sort of uh, mental health problems at shooting so many people. So they, they devised the gas chambers as an alternative, better solution. And that research started in, in 1941, based on actually earlier research that had been done into the killing of, of people with mental health problems before the war. Jonathan Dimbleby is author of Barbarossa, How Hitler Lost the War. Simple question, Jonathan. Was Hitler's greatest ideological foe the Soviet Union? Hitler had two ideological foes. He, he regarded the Soviet Union with great hatred. It was the Bolshevik Jewish conspiracy. And uh, he also regarded America as the great Satan as being a capitalist Jewish conspiracy. But his drive against the Soviet Union, um, you only have to go back to, to, to Mein Kampf to see it, was based partly on ideology to destroy the Bolshevism, partly to destroy the Jews, and partly to create Lebensraum, space, massive space, and particularly in Ukraine and further west, along with all the industrial potential, the raw materials. So it wasn't one thing alone. If you look at an airplane crash, it's very rarely one unique cause. It's a combination of factors. And I think in this case, those three factors, the urge to destroy Soviet communism, the urge to eliminate the Jews from Europe, and the urge to create Lebensraum combined to make the Soviet Union the first target in the belief or hope that then Britain, because the invasion had became clearly impossible uh, after the Battle of Britain, that in the hope that Britain would collapse and or that America would not come to uh, Britain's aid and therefore you could knock out Britain as well or force Britain more likely, force Britain to the conference table as indeed from time to time Churchill warned when he was trying to get America more closely involved in the war. This is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer. Now, Jonathan, the conventional wisdom is that Hitler's greatest ideological foe was the Soviet Union. And you write that Hitler's um, vision for the Third Reich was to destroy the Soviet Union. Not everyone agrees. The Cambridge historian, Brendan Sims, he was on this program last year. Here he is identifying what he believes is Hitler's real enemy. In the international sphere, his main enemy was clearly the United States and the British Empire, more so than the Soviet Union. Not that he's not worried about the Soviet Union, but his main concern is clearly Anglo-American. Critically, Operation Barbarossa, the invasion of the Soviet Union, is driven not primarily by the ideological concern, but by this straightforward desire to gain territory and resources, which is directed not against the Soviet Union, 
but against the Anglo-Americans. In other words, we can only survive, and this has been the theme since the 1920s, we can only survive against the United States and the British Empire if we too have got large amounts of space just as they have. And so he targets the Soviet Union not because it's his primary ideological enemy, doesn't feature much uh, in the uh, actual military and strategic planning documents for Barbarossa, uh, but rather because it's weak. These poor people have got Bolshevism, they're afflicted, and therefore it will be easier uh, to take them over. Now, that proved not to be the case, which is, I think, the principal reason why we read history backwards hmm. and therefore attach more significance to this ideological element and anti-Soviet element than it really deserves. That's Professor Brendan Sims, author of Hitler, Only the World Was Enough. That was on Between the Lines last year. Jonathan Dimbleby. Well, I'll respond first of all by saying that I greatly respect Brendan as an historian and and know him, and I therefore only respectfully disagree with that uh, isolation of the issue as being, A, the need just for the resources, and B, that the prime enemy were the Americans and the British. In fact, for a long time, he hoped to be able to have an accord with the British. He thought that they could share the plundering of the world together, and that's what he wanted. And the fact that it wasn't part of, I think he said, the the, the military and strategic planning, well, it it wouldn't have been because the ideological objective was not a necessary part of military and strategic planning. What is interesting about that, though, is that when Hitler, in the middle of 1941, dithered for four weeks or more, allowing the Russian space to regroup, He was torn between going south to the Ukraine and conquering the south and the oil of the Caucasus on the one hand, and on the other, uh, decapitating the, the Soviet Union by collapsing Moscow. And he believed that the semi-subhuman people of of the Soviet Union, indeed subhuman was the term he very frequently used, were weak and were uh, enthralled to Bolshevism. And that's why Bolshevism was very important. The idea, it seems to me, that that he wasn't opposed to Bolshevism, it, it, it just flies in the face of the of too much mm. evidence. So he, he said in Mein Kampf, he, he, he said something along the lines of Bolshevism must be exterminated. Mm. Moscow is the center of the doctrine, must disappear from the Earth's surface as soon as its riches have been brought to shelter. That's the kind of stuff he was saying in Mein Kampf and certainly in his dinner dinner table conversations. Brendan Sims would respond and say that in Mein Kampf, uh, believe it or not, uh, Hitler focuses a lot on Anglo-American international capitalism. That's true, because he, he, he was a Nazi. National socialism was his vision. Capitalism was an enemy. Communism was an enemy. And national socialism was the, was the way that was what Nazism was. Final question, Jonathan. What do you think is the lesson of Operation Barbarossa? I think... The Operation Barbarossa showed us in military terms that it was impossible to break the Soviet Union by land battle and would ever so be. I think there's a wider lesson, and it it goes back to Russia's own past, always threatened by invaders, always threatened by great powers that might seize this or that part of the territory. And if you fast forward to the the collapse of the Soviet Union and then the recreation of of Russia and all that followed, I think that we in the West have tended to ignore that 
facet that two things. One, genuinely, Russian leaders have feared the outside world. And secondly, there's no better way of reinforcing the support of an autocratic regime like Putin's regime than by constantly reminding your citizens that that threat exists and that you need to guard yourself against it. Had we been more, I think, balanced and more cautious after the fall of the Soviet Union and not treated it with relish as a source of great capitalist uh, wealth on the one hand and an ability to reinforce NATO as the dominant force in Europe, I think we might have been able to have a a better relationship than we than we had. You know, you can't second guess whether or not uh, they would have gone into Crimea or into Ukraine or threatening as they, to a degree, threaten uh, uh, the Baltic states. You can't second guess that because we just don't yet know. But you can suggest that had our relationship been one more of equals than, than of uh, democratic conquerors, I think that life might have been healthier for all of us in Europe. Yes. In other words, Russia had strategic sensibilities, a sphere of influence well before Lenin and Stalin arrived on the scene. Jonathan, an absolute thrill having you on ABC Radio. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Nice talking to you. Jonathan Dimbleby, he's author of Barbarossa, How Hitler Lost the War. It's published by Viking and it's available across all good bookstores across Australia. Well, that's all for the week. Thanks for joining us. And if you'd like to hear this or any other episode, again, we have a large catalogue on our program page. Just go to abc.net.au slash rn and follow the prompts to Between the Lines. Or even better, just download the ABC Listen app. You'll find all of the shows you love for free. Why not subscribe so you never miss an episode? I'm Tom Switzer. I look forward to your company next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.